everyone, it's Vanessa, and welcome to this week's re-release of A Tap on the Wrist. In our lead-up to Season 5, Around the World, we're revisiting stories from past seasons. This week, we're taking a look back at famed English bartender Ada Coleman from Episode 14, and Aqua Tafana, a poisoner from Rome, featured in Episode 67. We hope you join us for Season 5, which kicks off on May 31st, 2022, to hear stories from around the globe all season long. Enjoy. My story today is actually going to be about a famous female bartender. So very, mm. very different from your lady. <laughs> she loved alcohol. They wouldn't be friends. No, her name was Ada Coleman. So Ada was born in 1875 in England. So she didn't have to deal with prohibition. So they wouldn't have crossed paths. Okay. <laughs> She eventually would become the head bartender of the Savoy Hotel in London for 23 years. Oh, wow. And she was one of only two women to hold that title. And (laughs) this is what I was talking about that I'd have to explain. She was credited with creating a cocktail called the Hanky Panky. Oh. (laughs) Which I will get to (laughs) later, and it's not what you think. So Coleman's career in the hotel and bar industry started when she was 24, Her father had been a steward at the golf club owned by a man named Rupert Doily Cart. According to Wikipedia, Doily Cart was an English hotelier, theater owner, and impresario. Oh, impresario. Impresario, which is a person who organizes and often finances concerts, plays, or operas. So he was basically fancy as fuck. Yes. He was impressive. (laughs) As an impresario. (laughs) Sorry, that was a bad joke. (laughs) So it was when Coleman's father died that Doily Cart offered Ada a job at the golf club. And she was so impressive to him that he eventually moved her to a job at one of his fancy hotels called the Claridge. Claridge or Claridge? She was first placed at the flower shop there, and eventually she went... Of course she was. Like, of course she was placed at the flower shop. Yeah, yeah. But she eventually went over to the hotel bar. So according to the Daily Beast, it was while she was working at the flower shop that a a wine merchant at the hotel noticed her and decided to teach her some bar tricks. And she began by serving some simple drinks to hotel guests, And then one day she was called to make her first cocktail. And in an interview she did with the Daily Express, she said, I remember it was Manhattan that I made first and that it was Fisher, the wine butler, who gave me my first lesson. Wine butler. That's a fun job. I know. I wonder what he, he did. Did he just take care of the wine? I think a wine butler is someone, like, who comes to the table and uncorks it and lets you sample it. Sure. I should have looked that up. I was too busy looking up Empresario. I don't. Or my (laughs) other guess is they're the person that cleans the wine cellar. The butler of wine. Yes. No, but I think, I do think it's the first one. You know what I'm thinking of now, actually? Did you ever watch Downton Abbey? Like, season one. Did you ever, do you remember seeing a scene with Carson where he's like pouring the wine through like some kind of decanter and like, that's what I'm thinking a wine butler does. I'm sure that is what they do. Okay. So back in. Back in. <laughs> Wikipedia 
um, noted some interesting information about the time period that I wanted to share. So according to a study published in 1905, less than half the bartenders in London were women, and they were often referred to as barmaids. Don't like that. <laughs> there were apparently campaigns at the time, unsurprisingly, to get rid of barmaids because it was seen as morally bad to have women being bartenders. <sighs> I mean, it's it sucks and it's stupid, but it doesn't surprise me that that was Yeah, a thing. it doesn't surprise me, but I don't like it. And another bullshit thing is apparently a lot of bars specified that barmaids had to be 25 or younger. So at 24, she was like just getting in under that cap. Oh, wow. That's gross. And also not that surprising. Exactly. So eventually Coleman got a job bartending at the American bar of the Savoy hotel in London, which was also owned by Doily Cart. And in 1903, she became the head bartender. While she was working there, she gained a really great reputation and was really loved by her customers who called her Coley, I think. Is that Coley? She, yeah. Right? That's what it looks like to me. <laughs> so you'll probably recognize quite a few of her customers' names. They included the likes of Mark Twain, Charlie Chaplin, and the Prince of Wales, one of her customers, the Earl of Lonsdale, sounds fancy, wrote that she was so nice and so kind and so full of life and energy. And cocktail historian Ted Hughes, which, like, I want to be a cocktail historian. That sounds awesome. He said, not only was Coley a woman in the world of male bartenders, it was she who made the bar famous. She was known for throwing parties at her own home, and she loved musical theater. So, as I mentioned earlier, she was credited with the creation of a cocktail called the Hanky Panky. I can't wait to find out what's (laughs) in this cocktail. So, as Coleman continued to work, she began to experiment with different drinks, and she became an expert mixologist. So, the Hanky Panky, the drink she created, is a combination of gin, vermouth, and fernet bronca, Mm -hmm. which I don't know what that is, do you? I mean, I've had it in drinks before. Some kind of liquor. Yes. And it's still served at the American bar today. The story behind how it was made is pretty cute, so I wanted to share that. So one of Coleman's regular clients was a comedic actor named Charles Hawtrey. And in an interview, Coleman said that he was one of the best judges of cocktails that she knew. So in the Daily Express, where she did this interview, she said... Some years ago, when he was overworking, he used to come into the bar and say, Coley, I'm tired. Give me something with a bit of a punch in it. It was for him that I spent hours experimenting until I had invented a new cocktail. The next time he came in, I told him I had a new drink for him. He sipped it, and draining the glass, he said, By Jove, this is the real Hanky Panky. (laughs) And Hanky Panky is what it's been called ever since. Now, I do want to know that the sources I used noted that hanky-panky did not mean sex in England at the time. It was more like magic or witchcraft. So he was like saying, this is real magic that you made. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. That's what they claim. Okay. So in 1925, the Savoy Hotel shut down for renovations And after almost a quarter of a century, they announced that Ada Coleman would be retiring. 
Now, some people found this suspicious because there was another well-known female bartender there named Ruth Burgess. She was known as Miss B or Kitty, and she'd started working there the year before Coleman, and the bar announced that she was also retiring. Like, they announced that both female bartenders were retiring at the same time. That is weird. Yeah. The person who took over as the new head barman was a man named Henry Craddock, who, according to Wikipedia, had worked the service bar for five years while the women worked the front bar. So he was working the service bar in the back and got promoted to be front of the bar. Craddock went on to write the Savoy cocktail book, which, according to Daily, the Daily Beast, became an essential reference book for the modern cocktail revival 70 years after it was written. He only included one drink created by Coleman, which was, of course, the Hanky Panky. And it was also noted that Craddock was credited for creating a drink called the White Lady Cocktail, which was a popular drink for a while. It had gin, Cointreau, lemon juice, and like I said, was just a popular drink for a while, so I wanted to include that. It sounds delicious. It does sound good. Like you should try ordering, ordering a White Lady Cocktail. <laughs> I don't think I would. As I said it, I realized that going up to a bar and ordering, can I have the white lady cocktail? We're going to get <laughs> Not a great idea. Never mind. We'll make one ourselves. <laughs> well, we can just order the cocktail, like... The ingredients. With the ingredients. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... <laughs> There are a couple of theories of why Coleman and Ruth were retired, and a couple of them involve Craddock, which is why I wanted to talk about him a little bit. So the first theory is that Coleman was a mentor to Craddock and was kind of taking him under her wing so that he could take over for her. Two people that wrote a book called The Cocktail Hour, called named Tenya and Andre Darlington, said Coleman was a mentor to Harry Craddock, who worked under her for four years. However, there's really no evidence of their relationship to each other or whether they interacted much at all. And the Daily Beast notes that it's kind of telling that he had this whole cocktail menu about the Savoy Hotel and only credited her with one cocktail. Yeah, that kind of seems like bullshit. Yeah. So theory number two, which seems to be much more popular is that the women were forced out because Craddock didn't like the idea of having two women above him which like this was the 1920s so that wouldn't be that surprising even though it sucks uh, yeah I mean I just if they were better then they were better right and in an article I read on vinepair.com the author of the article mentions that it suggested Coleman was possibly forced out of the American bar because Craddock wasn't super happy with a female head bartender like I said but there was no evidence of this either although people did kind of feel that he was kind of full of himself and would likely not want to be shown up especially by a woman so just to use a man yeah so the last theory suggests again that both women were forced out but it doesn't blame Craddock it blames Americans Oh, like, just all of us? Yeah. Okay. So, it's worth noting that Craddock trained in the U.S. and that American bars, quote-unquote, were popular in England, which the Daily Beast noted served American-style drinks heavy on the ice, which, like, I don't... Like, why were they popular then? Who wants more ice in their drink? 
Well, wait, hold on. Read the sentence again. So, American bars were popular in England, and the Daily Beast noted that Amer- they served American-style drinks heavy on the ice. Well, I think that that's because in England it's not typical. Like, most places you go and you order a cold drink, it's served no ice. Mm-hmm. So they're saying that they served cocktails with ice, which was made popular. popular. And, I mean, it is an American thing. Yeah. Anyway, apparently it was much less likely for women to be bartenders in America than in England during that time. So it didn't sit very well with Americans who were visiting England. And because some of this was during Prohibition in America, the bar was often full of American customers who were just put off by having women as bartenders. Because we suck, apparently. Americans are always ruining stuff. <laughs> so, British cocktail journalist Alice Lascelles wrote in 10 Cocktails, The Art of Convenial Drinking, Americans, unlike the British, found the notion of female bartending troubling. However, against this theory, Susan Scott, who is an archivist at the Savoy Hotel, said... The idea of the change being made to accommodate Americans is definitely untrue. The hotel had and still has a large American client base, but the American bar was intended intended to appeal not only to visitors to London, but also to some extent predominantly to the local clientele. No one, Americans included, had minded being served by women previously. So she was kind of trying to debunk yeah. that, that whole theory. But because there's really no evidence of the relationship between Coleman and Craddock or any actual ideas of the bartender, bar owners from back then, we'll probably know why she actually, we'll never know why she actually retired. Right. So there were some rumors after she left that she went back to working at the flower shop. Ugh. But that was never proven. What we do know is that she eventually took a part-time job managing the girl's Managing the girls that worked in a ladies' cloak room at the Berkeley Hotel, which I feel like sad. It does, and I feel like it's kind of evidence that she was forced out because it's not that she wanted to stop working. Right, she kept working. She just not wasn't working at a bar. So Craddock stayed at the Savoy until 1938, and he left to open another bar at the Dorchester Hotel. So he fucking left them if they forced her out. Well, and I, they were screwed. Yeah, but he wrote that book that then goes on. Yeah. It actually probably worked out for him. So Ada Coleman died at the age of 91 in 1966. She had a ni- nice long life. And in her interview with the Daily Express, she estimated that she'd served 100,000 customers and poured 1 million drinks. Wow. Her cocktail, the Hanky Panky, like I said, is still served. And in 2015, it was listed by Drinks International as one of the 50 best-selling cocktails. And in 2016, Liquor.com listed Coleman as one of the nine most important bartenders of all time. Wow. So, still some nice recognition for her all these years later. Right. And according to Wikipedia, bartenders at the Savoy still speak of her as an iconic legend. So, like, she was never really forgotten. People still really appreciate the work that she did. And he's just an asshole. Well, he wrote a really popular book that became a manual. 
I know, but and he I might just... not be. It might have been the hotel's fault, but he might have been an asshole. I like to believe it's his fault. Yeah, I feel like it probably was. But I'm glad that like sorry she... to any descendants of the Craddock line. I'm glad that she got or is now getting the recognition that she deserves. Exactly. And that is the story of Ada Coleman. Um, I got a lot of my information from a lot of places that I've already cited. Wikipedia, an article on the Daily Beast called What Ended Wait, the... you used Wikipedia? Yeah. Oh Isn't that God. shocking? I can't believe it. <laughs> I never <laughs> use them. <laughs> Donate to Wikipedia. <laughs> an article on the Daily Beast called What Ended the Career of the World's First Celebrity Female Bartender by Wayne Curtis. And an article on VinePair.com called Ada Coleman, One of History's Most Famous Female Mixologists by Emily Bell. And all of those places used a lot of quotes from an interview Coley did with the Daily Express. So, gotta throw them some credit too. Awesome. Yeah. So today I am sharing the story of Julia Tofana and her murderous ways. And her murderous ways. Yes. Murder. <laughs> Um, have you heard of her before? I haven't. Okay, good. Um, but before we talk about her creations, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the art of poisoning. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're going to teach me? Yeah. <laughs> How to poison. Um, so, poison has been used throughout history since the beginning of time mm-hmm. as a clean-ish way of getting rid of people you are no longer in need of. You like guns, a little bit too loud. Yeah. Knives, a little bit too messy. Yeah. But, so poison in history has kind of been nicknamed the inheritance powder um, because it's known as like the easiest way to kill someone off if you're trying to get an inheritance and not be caught. Yeah. um, I always, I don't know why this popped into my mind. I've always wanted, not that I will use it, one of those rings that like, you know, like those old timey rings that they put the poison in and they would like just, just dump, dump it, it in. I just want one just to have it. Noted. <laughs> You're going to be looking at my hand every time I start Vanessa's birthday's in June. <laughs> um, and, and then in history, a lot of people associate poison as like the women's weapon mm-hmm. um, because it is that. clean and it's somewhat easy to administer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, let's be real. It's time efficient. It's meticulous. And you can plan it out. Right. Which, for me, fits my personality. <laughs> <laughs> Like, so if Laura's going to murder <laughs> Poison would be my weapon of choice. <laughs> Just note that. Um, she's never drinking a cocktail. Um, okay. So one article I read claimed, and I quote, a goblet of wine suitably treated would be served and death would result at the appointed time. The poison of the bourgeois was reported to function with time clock precision. It is said that a drought could be prepared that would kill in a day, a month, or a year as desired. So, can you... Sorry. A drought could be prepared that could kill someone in a year? 
Well, there are some poisons that are not like, and the one I'm going to tell you about today is one where its first usage wasn't meant to kill that person. Oh, it'd have to be like repeated. It was repeated over time and it becomes like a slow method of murder. Um, Which... I'm guessing the person like slowly starts to get sick. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I'm, we're gonna tell you why. I'm gonna tell you why that was um, preferable in this situation. Okay. <laughs> but um, so I mean, if you if you want more control over the murder, <laughs> <laughs> okay, poison's a good option. Uh huh. Um. Okay, but let's get back to like today's specific tale. Okay. Um. The setting of my story takes place in 17th century Italy. And so if you're not super familiar with 17th century Italy, because I wasn't. You're um, not? (laughs) It wasn't really a ladies world. Okay. Uh, In fact, at this time, the only way women could make money during this time was to get married. Mm -hmm. Option A. Yeah. Beg on the street. Option B, or participate in sex work or prostitution, yeah. as it was called at the time. Option C, that was really it. Women were not allowed to own businesses. Women were not allowed to really, like, that, the men had all the control in Italy at the time and in most places around the world at the time. Yeah. Um, so, for that, many women, the majority, would choose option A marriage being the safest option. Right. You marry to someone, then you share their wealth, and you can live a pretty, we would hope, easy lifestyle. But these marriages weren't based on love. In many cases, they were arranged um, or forced. And men and husbands had complete control over what their wives could do at the time. in many cases, that would play out with abuse, physically and verbally. Mm-hmm. Um, violence happened. Women at the time were basically option objects that were auctioned off and, like, quote-unquote, purchased for procreation. Uh, men wanted heirs. Women were the only ones who could do that. Yep. (laughs) So it was just kind of a sad time for women. They had very little control over their own lives. However, uh, and again, probably not a shock to many women um, or men listening either, healthcare was not a priority for anyone at the time. Yeah. And there were not as many scientific advances in 17th century Italy Uh, So, women who were used for, like, procreation machines would often die in childbirth or in other types of complications dealing with, like, their women issues, as you (laughs) talked about in your story. There was no Lydia to help them. There was no Lydia for them. Um, And, you know, nowadays, if you're in a relationship and you don't want to have kids and you and your husband can't agree on it, you have options as a woman. Like divorce. Yep. But divorce was not a thing in 17th century Italy. I wouldn't think so. When women found themselves in these situations, like abusive marriages or forced to bear children after children, um, 
they would want to get out of it and like yeah. get divorced and choose option B or C, beg for money or go into sex work. But like divorce did not exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is when we have to move to a new plan. I'm, I feel like I know what this plan is. And the plan is to become a widow. Yep. <laughs> and society was so much friendlier to widows. Yeah. They could live pretty peacefully. Poor thing, lost her husband. I know. (laughs) So here we enter. One, Julia Tofana. Okay. Um, Julia was a Sicilian woman, a woman who lived and worked in Palermo in the first half of the 17th century. And then uh, history says she moves to Rome. Not a whole lot known about her because she... She kept herself pretty hidden from the public eye, based on what I'm going to tell you. Yeah. Um, Plus, it was the 17th century. Right. So, <laughs> I feel like it was easy to go. And, um, so, we don't know a lot about her family. It's all kind of rumors. We don't know a ton about her early life, except they believe she spent time working in apothecaries growing up and learning the art of medicines. Uh, And this is where she began to kind of dabble with different chemicals and create her own concoctions. I told you our Just like Lydia. I told you. (laughs) We did not plan this. Our stories are just very on trend. Um, And at a fairly young age, she was forced into a marriage and she had a young daughter herself. And she came to realize that she might need a way out of her marriage and she developed this concoction that was successful and other people start to he- started to hear about it and she kind of slowly grew a following. Okay. Um, <laughs> I know, it sounds crazy. I'm going to get there. So, Julia decides, well, I can't just open up like a, a poison shop. That's crazy. You can't? No. <laughs> so... Julia opens up a cosmetic store. Okay. And in this cosmetic store, uh, you know, she does sell makeups of all kinds and ointments and... I mean, it is a store that women would frequent. Right, right. So. But it really is a front for her her legitimate business mm-hmm. of the local widow maker. She uh, was like a poison speakeasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, And so the product that she creates and the one that is associated with her name um, throughout history is called Aqua Tifana. You're looking at me like you've heard of it. It, like, kind of rings a bell, but, like, not, like, I I don't know. It just, like, it's one of, it, like, sounds familiar. Yeah, I know. I thought the same thing, and then I don't think I knew the details, but I, I feel like I've heard the plot somewhere anyways i've heard i feel like i've just heard that name but i don't, I don't know so aqua tefana is a concoction or a poison or a liquid that was laced with three main ingredients arsenic lead and belladonna that sounds intense yes <laughs> um, it was quite effective so the the basic gist of how this poison worked, and then I'm going to get into some of the other details. A woman would would go and visit Julia at her shop, purchase this poison, bring it home, and then you would administer it over multiple doses. It usually took four doses to mm-hmm. become 
lethal. Um, and in many cases, it would be put into, like, the wine at dinner. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if a husband didn't drink, it would be put into soup. It had to be administered into, like, a liquid. Yeah. Um, but most stories, it's typically used in wine. Yeah. Which is... Your time. Well, yeah. That's how, <laughs> that's how it goes. Um, and so here's how it worked. After the first dose, a husband would start to get some cold-like symptoms. Okay. Not a big deal. Yeah. Sick for a couple days, maybe, you know, stomach cramps, whatever. Then after the second dose, a weakness would kind of start to take over the husband's body. And at this time, the wife might call for a local doctor, right? Her husband's really not feeling well. Headaches have set in. The doctor will come, do an exam. Oh, it's just a cold. Here's some, like, cold remedy. Uh Like, you'll feel better in a couple days. Rest. You're fine. Then the wife would give a third dose of Aquatafana. Um, The third dose is where, like, it really starts to hit the husband. Now they're going to have more, like, internal burning of, like, like their stomach is going to feel like it's on fire. Because, you know, the arsenic and the belladonna are really starting to get into those organs. Um, You might have, like, vomiting, diarrhea, like... Yeah. Almost like food poisoning, like, symptoms, but to an extreme. And at this point... Sounds like they're getting COVID. (laughs) I know. At this point, the the wife would call the doctor back. You said he'd be better. What what is wrong? And the, the doctors were always perplexed. They didn't know why the remedies weren't, weren't working. Like, he should be better. I don't know what's mm-hmm. going on. You need more rest. You need more rest, you know. Um, there weren't, like, x-ray machines or blood tests being happening in the 17th right, right. century. So, Much um, easier to get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then by the fourth dose is usually the husband would die yeah. after the fourth dose. So, a wife really could administer this quickly over, like, four days or over a couple weeks, um, which is typically how it happened. There'd be a couple days between doses. Um, I feel like that is smart because then it's like, oh, he was just getting sick. Like, it, it's not like a sudden, like, he was healthy and all of a sudden he just dropped dead. It's like a smart way to go about it. Right. Um, so, there is in... I found a blog that wrote about Aquatafana, and in this blog, um, it's mike-history.com, he actually references another journal, Chambers Journal, and they had, like, such a good description of what the experience of Aquatafana was, um, and it's not too long, it's like two paragraphs, but I, I really just want to read it, because... I couldn't write it any better, and I figured this primary source was great. Yeah. Okay. So, administered in wine or some other liquid by the flattering Tatris, Aquatafana produced but a scarcely noticeable effect. The husband became a little out of sorts, felt weak and languid, so little indisposed that he would scarcely call in a medical man. After the second dose of poison... The weakness and languor became more pronounced. Um, And then it goes on, like I said, the husband, or they would call a doctor, blah, 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 blah. 
And then the third drop would be administered and would prostrate even the most vigorous man. The doctor would be completely puzzled to see that the apparent simple ailment did not surrender to his drugs. And while he would still be in the dark as to its nature, other doses would be given uh, until death would claim the victim for its own. Now, this is why I really wanted to read this part, because okay. this is this is the, like, the genius behind Aquatavana. Okay. To save her fair fame, the wife would demand a post-mortem examination, which would always result in nothing. No foul play. Like... There would be no trace of the poison. No trace of Aquatavana. It was, like... It would just naturally do what it did, and, like, they could never find a trace of it. So the woman would not be able to be slandered by family or the town that she did anything, and, like, she could then claim, like, the money and the property and everything and move on with her life. Um, Damn. Yeah. And everyone would just assume that the husband died of a terrible cold or inflammation, um, and then, like, sh- just, just live her life. On. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, I just think it's really, like, smart. Um, yeah. I, if you're going to administer poison and kill your husband. <laughs> which, um, which we do not recommend. Which we don't condone. So, I just want to talk about the ingredients that went into Aquatafana. Okay. Um, arsenic, we've heard of. We yep. know it's dangerous. Lead, not recommend for consumption. Yeah, I probably shouldn't eat that. And then belladonna, which I didn't know a lot about. I've heard about it, but I didn't really know what it did. I actually have no idea what it is, and I, I didn't want to sound dumb, so I didn't ask. <laughs> well, let me tell you. So belladonna, in Italian, actually means beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. And it is a type of berry, a nightshade berry. And at the time, belladonna was actually used in a lot of cosmetics. Um, they take the liquid of the berry and you would put a tiny drop into your eyeballs and it dilates your pupils. It's actually something that they now use at like ophthalmologists. Oh. To dilate your pupils. However, it is very dangerous if used in large doses. Okay. (laughs) So, that's why, like, they only put... It's it's mixed with other things at the Mm -hmm. ophthalmologist, and it's, like, you know, they don't do a a lot of it. But at the time, um, dilated pupils were seen as, like, um, like the height of beauty in Italy. It's like a fashion trend. So, Belladonna was very easy to get your hands on. Okay. Especially as a cosmetic store. Mm-hmm. And then she would just add the arsenic and the lead and sell it. Um, now, Julia was a very smart businesswoman. And she operated her business for over 50 years. Oh, wow. Yes. And that was in two reasons. One, she was good at it. And uh-huh. there was never, like, a failed Aquatafana like it didn't work. Yeah. And two, the women in Rome at the time trusted her. Um, and no one ratted her I out. I was going to say, like... Because if you ratted her out, you would then be subjecting yourself to have used her services. Right. 
So no one exposed her, um, and that's how she got away away with it. But the actual poison itself also was bottled and sold in such a way that it just hid in plain sight. So the poison, first she tried to do a powdered version, and she would put it into compacts and sell it as, like, a compact that women could put Mm. on their vanities. Okay. And no one was any wiser at this makeup sitting on a dressing table. Men weren't going to try the makeup. Right. Like, it was very safe and could be hidden in plain sight. Right. Um, But over time, it got harder to get the powder, you know, to mix properly into the liquids, like wine, that it was it was going oh, into. it would take a lot of mixing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So her consumers wanted a liquid version. And so Julia changed her, her bottling technique. She perfected the liquid poison. And she then started to bottle it in tiny vials that, again, would look very normal on a cosmetics vanity. Okay. Um, she even went as far as to put labels on them and to, um, like, they were often labeled as creams or ointments. And then she would put directions on it that were the real directions for Aquatofana, but could also be misconstrued as the directions for, like, an ointment or a cream. Oh. So it would say, like, step one, use one to two drops. Like, at night. And, like, people, like, no one knew that it was a deadly poison. That's very clever. So, nothing weird going on. Just shopping at the local cosmetic store. So, no one was suspicious of Julia. No one was suspicious of the women. But it was, like, this womanhood of secret... Secrecy. Like, everyone... Not everyone... The women knew what Julia was offering, mm-hmm. and if they needed her services, they went to her, but then no one ever ratted her out. Wow. I know. And For so... 50 years. I know. Wow. And people often wonder, like, why did she do it? Because she was obviously putting herself at risk yeah. every time she did this. You never knew if you were going to get the one person who was going to tell on you yeah but she was very sympathetic to lower class women who were stuck in terrible marriages and she had found a solution and could solve these women's problems and she felt compelled to do it um and another another thing that i just love about aqua tofana because aqua tofana was such a slow working poison and it would happen over the process of four doses it gave men time to get their affairs in order so if they didn't have a will they could have written a will if they wanted to repent some sins they had time to like it it made the women feel less guilty about killing their husbands because like they had time to like prepare but also, they made sure that they were getting what they wanted. What they wanted. Yeah. So it's just kind of this very strange place to be in. Like, I don't ag- agree with murdering your husband, but I also empathize. Yeah. With it. Okay. So how how does the story end? She she does run 
this business for 50 years, but at one point she does have a customer go rogue. Um, and so even though she vetted her customers, you had to like kind of know someone to get in. Um, one of Julia's new customers does buy the Aquatafana and administers it into her husband's soup um, one night. And as he goes to sit down and start eating, the wife is overcome with guilt and immediately starts telling her husband he has to stop eating. And he's like, what do you mean I have to stop eating? Um, And he becomes very physically abusive. She, like, doesn't tell him. She's just like, you can't eat anymore. And he, like, demands to know why and becomes physically abusive to a point that she eventually tells the truth that she had poisoned the food. Um, And there, then he takes her to the police and the police torture her until she tells them where she got the poison. So it wasn't someone being a dick, like they, it it just was unfortunate that this woman It was like she, yeah, she like got cold feet. Yeah. And then her husband took her to the police and then, yes. So as this is happening, like all of a sudden women in the town like find out because, you know, gossip spreads pretty quickly yeah. and women want to protect Julia because if it gets out that this is something that's gone on for years there's going to be lots of questionable deaths yeah plus if the police tortured this woman they could torture her and get names out of her yes so Julia is tipped off that her name has been given to the police so she packs up real quick Uh huh. and she flees Um, And she takes refuge in a church. And the church takes her in and is protecting her. But it gets to a point where the church comes under so much fire. And people are coming to the church and demanding Julia's release. And by people, I mean men. Yep. And then, like, other rumors start to flare up around it the way that gossip does. Right. So now people are spreading rumors that as like revenge for them telling on Julia she has poisoned the water system so now like the whole town is afraid to drink oh my god because they think aqua tafana is been put into the water uh-huh. and so now in addition to the men coming to the church now women are starting to step up the church actually hands Julia over to the police um and she is tortured and she eventually confesses to her crimes mm-hmm. um, which I haven't mentioned specific numbers but how many deaths do you think Julia Tafana confessed to? 150. 600 Oh my god I was deaths. way low. Yes. I way low yes. that. So she confesses to being a part and she has meticulous records like she does not play she has every woman written down that she sold aqua tafana to wow um and uh so in 1659 julia tafana is executed by hanging um for her crimes 
many of her clients in the following years would also oh, no. be punished because their husband, I mean, not their husbands, but in many cases, the families of the husbands or their new husbands uh-huh. would turn them in. Yeah. Um, so many women actually were killed. Oh, wow. Because of Aqua Tifana being told. Wow. Um, but Aqua Tifana's legend does not end with Julia. Um, it's noted she did have a daughter, um, and her daughter was also executed in, in 1659, but, like, the recipe continued. I think there were other, like, daughters and yeah. stuff. Um, and it's rumored that in 1791, while Mozart was on his deathbed, he is quoted as saying that he believes he was poisoned by Aqua Tifana. Really? Yes. Wow. So he thinks that's how he was killed. And, I mean, it's a, a rumor. There's no proof yeah. of it. But um, he bl- he thought he had been poisoned by Aqua Tifana. Oh, wow. By name. Um, and so he, here's my dilemma, like I mentioned a few minutes ago. I don't condone murder. Right. No, we no one should. <laughs> and, like, this season we are celebrating all of these badass women who are, like, inventors and creators and played a role in alcohol's history but I'm like still empathetic to Julia Tafana and I guess more I'm empathetic to the women that felt like they had no other choice but right. to use this product um, because I'm sure a lot of them were in bad situations right you know that they were being abused and you know things like that and then the idea that everyone in until the end, banded together. Like, it was, like, this secret society of women that knew about poison Uh and, like, all chose to, like, keep it hush-hush. Like, I just love that aspect of, like, the female bonding. Um, Bonding over poison. (laughs) And, like, the protection of one another for so many uh, years. Right. Even if her death count rivals that of Al Capone. I mean, I think she and, has Al Capone beat. Yeah, well, he's he's estimated to be responsible for 600 deaths as Is well. Is he really? Yeah. I don't know why I didn't know that. Um, Still learning things about Capone. <laughs> and so, like, we villainize him, and I find it really hard to villainize her. Um, but she didn't do great things. I just... The idea of poisoning wine seems like such a classy... (laughs) A classy way to murder. A classy way to murder. If you have to murder someone. I mean, it feels very Game of Thrones to me. You know, I've only ever seen one episode of Game of Thrones. And it was that episode? And it was that episode. (laughs) Um, And a badass woman did it. Yeah. And then this is... And I, I briefly told you this when we had book club this week. Uh-huh. I am currently in the middle of reading a book. Uh-huh. And unrelated, I found this story a few weeks ago and was like, I'm going to do this story for this season. Then I started reading this book, and it's called The Lost Apothecary. Uh-huh. I think it's Sarah Penner. And it's so good, and it's so similar to the story of Aqua Tifana, uh-huh. that like I googled, was she inspired by it? And she has come out in interviews saying she was not inspired by it, 
But there are so many similarities. Uh-huh. So her book is fictional, but it, like, very much is in this realm and this idea. So if you enjoyed this story about Julia Tofana and Aqua Tofana, but want to read a fictional, like, historical fantasy book, The Lost Apothecary is, like, right in this vein. Okay. Um, I do have a couple sources. Okay. Um, So mike-history.com is the blog I mentioned earlier. The article is called Aqua Tofana, Slow Poisoning, and husband killing in seventeenth in the seventeenth century, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then where I got inspired to do this story was off a YouTube video. Okay, that I watch. It's Murder and Makeup Mondays. Nice, but Bailey Sarian. She does. It's a whole th- series she does every Monday. She mm-hmm. like gets ready, does her makeup, and tells a true crime story. I love it. Um, but uh, so I watched her video. A couple weeks ago, um, and like heard the whole story, and then rewatched it this week in prep for this. But um, so that's a really fun like recommendation too. If yeah. You, like subscribe to her because she releases new videos every week. Yeah. Um, very true crime esque. Love it. Laura and I hope you enjoyed this re-release. We have two more to go before season five launches on May thirty first. If you want to see pictures from this episode or find out more information about season five, check us out on Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist. And you can always email us with story ideas at tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. Cheers.